This is an ABC podcast. A brief warning, this discussion contains some references to torture, so listener discretion is advised. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. We'll lead Ali. My name's Scott Stevens. is my co-host. Scott, I suppose this is a show we could have done last week. We could have, yes. <laughs> but we've, we've chosen to do it this week in the sense that it's, it's tied... Uh, how tightly is it tied? I suppose reasonably tightly to, to an anniversary, um, which has already gone. But last week would have been premature. Anyway, I, I always find anniversary-related shows a bit tricky. So I, don't, do I. I don't know why. And I'm instinctively not attracted to them. But then every now and again, something comes along where I suppose you really do have to. Um, we've done anniversaries that are probably less high profile, lower profile than the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks. Yeah. Um, but I suppose we are a little bit out on our own by doing it this week rather than last. It, it makes sense, though. Can I just say one thing about anniversaries, though, before we get into why it makes sense sure. to do this topic when we're doing it? One of the things that I've been concerned for a while, and, and you last week on our show, you wanted to bookmark a topic that you wanted to do into the future, which I, I love. Let me bookmark one similar. Um, so much, I don't know if it's because the media, uh, um, you know, one of the things about, about being a religiously observant person is that time isn't undifferentiated. There, there are certain moments around the year. There are certain seasons. There are festivals. There are days for repentance. There are days for rejoicing. There are days of mutual acknowledgement. There are days for mass giving. Uh, all of these things, I think, are wonderful. These are all ways of differentiating, of breaking up, of giving time a kind of internal coherence, internal narrative. The media doesn't work around uh, religious calendars, <laughs> you know, if wishing made it so, but wishing won't make it so. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me that the media does have a kind of secular alternative, which is we get emails almost daily about things that are coming up, about international days of whatever, about this anniversary of that, or about this commemoration of something else. And it's almost like because there is this constant threat, do we actually have enough to talk about? Do we have enough that's meaningful to talk about? One of the ways in which we tether ourselves to something like an internal narrative is by religiously, and I do mean religiously, uh, observing the eventification of annual life. And I think one, that's, that's been one of the things that has corroded not just our way of thinking about time and about the ordinary but also it's been one of the things that I think has led to a broader obsession with events in politics. Whereas any democratic theorist, any moral philosopher worth their salt points out that what really sustains democracy is the way in which democratic practices circulate in everyday conversations, the way in which forms of mutual recognition, acknowledgement, politeness, what George Orwell called common decency, those are the things that that allow democracy to become a moral reality in the same way that the way that one conducts oneself in everyday speech are one of the things, one of the ways that we demonstrate dignity, mutual regard, and our common commitment to one another. So I've, I've long worried, I guess, about the eventification of the way that we think about politics and the media's ongoing addiction to what can only be called, I think, the eventification of the annual calendar. 
All that said, I, I mean, I don't know if you like that or not. <laughs> no, I think I do. Yeah. 20, 20 years after 9-11, that does feel like a pretty big event. And more than that, one of the diagnoses of what took place on 9-11 that I've always quite liked is that of Slavoj Žižek, who argued at the time, and he really did. I mean, he published an article on September 12th. There's a long story here, by the way. I was with him in a Melbourne pub two weeks before 9-11 happened. That, that's a whole sort of long story mm. about whatever and, <laughs> and about the sheer amount of spittle uh, that the sandwich I was eating at the time got drenched in as a result you of... You always talk about the spittle, I've noticed. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Any, anyway, one of Slavoj Žižek's early diagnoses, and I, I still think it's exactly right, is that what really happened on September 11th didn't begin until September 12th. It was the aftermath, and it was what was given license on September 12th. It's the world that became possible on September 12th that in many respects explain what it is that took place on September 11th. And I think one of the things that became possible, let's just say the morning after, or in our case, the week after, one of the things that became possible is that something that we felt, that we believed, that we consoled ourselves over and we congratulated ourselves on, one of the things that was relegated, consigned to less enlightened times, uh, revealed itself as never having gone away at all, namely a willingness to torture. And not just a willingness to torture, but also a preparedness of certain institutions, lawyers, um, intelligence officials, uh, figures within the military who frankly ought to know better, and moral philosophers who absolutely should have known better, the preparedness of certain institutions, organizations, public figures to give a kind of post hoc justification, post hoc rationale for why torture, quote unquote, in certain circumstances may well be apt, may well be permissible, may well be something that can be on utilitarian or security related grounds, be explicable and given a degree of license to. The fact that these things took place, I think, changed the way that we have come to think about not just the practice of democracy, but just how tenacious, just how thick and firm our, our commitment to certain democratic practices, values, ideals, not to mention things like conventions uh, or declarations of human rights, just how tenacious, how thick those commitments are. I'll just say one other thing, Willie, and then I'm, I'll hand the stage over to you. I think one of the things that we've then slipped to in the wake of the immediate post-9-11 era is to congratulate ourselves that once in 2004, those horrifying, horrifying images of human degradation, humiliation, and torture emerged from Abu Ghraib. Once those things took place and there's the outrage following once there were the serious debates about whether these things should have been conceivable, permissible in the first place, once that took place and the outrage began to subside and something like the there was universal judgment on the failure of the presidencies and prime ministerships that then coincided with 9-11 and its aftermath, once that passed, I think the other conceit that we then indulged ourselves in is the idea that torture also is so post 9-11. We had that debate. We were there to argue it. 
that's something that we can relatively easily consign to being so a decade ago. And then something like the revelations of the Brereton inquiry come out. And then we see something like the events that took place on the side of a street in South Minneapolis last year. And then we see the resounding resumption of state torture in places like Myanmar. And then we see just a few weeks ago a horrifying incident took place a few hours north of Bangkok uh, in Thailand at a police station where a detainee on drug charges was suffocated by means of a series of plastic bags. We see these things come back and then we're reminded, okay, these things in fact never went away at all. Yeah, I feel uh, there are three different shows there. There are. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one to do. Um, <laughs> it, it's complicated. I mean, I think at the start, I would say the, the idea of torture now being something, well, sorry, being something that never went away, but also something that is now happening around the world in sort of really quite visible ways, I suppose, is what's interesting about some of the examples you cite there, Myanmar, Thailand, is this was one of the warnings that was sounded at the time that America started flirting with, to put it mildly perhaps, the, the legitimation of torture, mm. which was that if the country that holds itself out as a sort of setter of moral fashion trends um, <laughs> and a, a country that... Wow. Occupy, so I didn't mean that to sound... No, you know, no, no, I sorry, love the but, description. No, I think that's wonderful. But, you know, the idea that it, this is a country that, that takes a position of being on a moral high ground very often, and undoubtedly that is disputed by many around the world in the realm of foreign policy, but nonetheless that is the kind of position it takes, right? You know, um, we invade because we want to liberate people and spread democracy and so on and so forth in at least one version of American foreign policy of the 9-11 era. Um, that once that country started to legitimate torture, then other countries that have sort of much grander traditions of torture, if you like, will therefore find a legitimacy that they can latch onto as a result of that. It'll be a kind of reflected legitimacy. So that warning was sounded very early. And I do think there's something there to note that I, I think, at least arguably, that has now been observed. But some of your examples, Scott, I find difficult to group together. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you were going would, to say that. Yeah. Would, would you say that the the things in the Brereton report, so these are reports of really completely unjustifiable human rights abuses from Australian forces in Afghanistan, particularly the SAS, that that is the same thing as the torture debate that we were having in the post 9-11 era that America especially was having at the time or the George Floyd killing. Would you say there that I'm not so sure that a straight line or even a curved line can really be drawn between them. Hmm. To take the Brereton report, it, one of the things that was so shocking and terrible about the events described in that report is that it wasn't instrumental at all and that it wasn't pursuant to any kind of overarching state policy. Indeed, it was uh, is, obviously... Is gratuitous? Is, is, is gratuitous too strong a term? No, I think that's probably right. But the point is, it wasn't sanctioned, uh, except via an indirect thing about, you know, the culture within the military and that sort of argument. But it wasn't like an explicitly sanctioned thing. And it wasn't necessarily trying to achieve a particular thing within the context of the war. Mm. Whereas the thing that was 
frightening about the American debate was that this was about the express governmental sanctioning of the use of torture, even if they wanted to use a different name, such as, such as enhanced interrogation techniques, to justify it. It was instrumental in its way. There were no doubt symbolic dimensions and gratuitous dimensions to it, but it was presented and debated as a kind of perfectly legitimate thing to do for instrumental reasons. In other words, to acquire relevant information. Yeah, so you have the whole ticking time bomb argument. You know, it's worth torturing a terrorist to get information about an imminent attack to save innocent people, especially when the terrorist is anything but innocent, right? That sort of thing. And we can talk about that sort of scenario if you like, because I think it falls over. I have not yet come across a good argument for that scenario that actually stands up once you start thinking about it. Or you have the argument that I think became, you know, started to emerge in academic circles that it's worth legalizing torture because torture is going to happen anyway. And so it's much better being legalized and regulated rather than just happening in this unregulated way. That is a sort of inattention to the moral hazard of, of legitimating torture in the first place. But I feel like these are all different things from one another. And I'm, I'm just interested in hearing you explain why you think it's worth grouping them together. That's fascinating. I'm so glad you did that. I, I dangled a nice, bright, shiny lure in yeah. front of you and you snapped. That was gorgeous. Hey, um, just something interesting. I'm not sure if you remember. Mm. I know our listeners won't know. We first, in fact, discussed the very first time you and I met at a little coffee shop near University of Melbourne. The law school, yes. Yes. Yeah. Our first discussion was about our mutual admiration for John Gray's lovely little essay about the modest plea for the legalization of torture. Right. <laughs> it's so interesting that, that that's where our kind of our intellectual and otherwise friendship began. Uh, and, and in fact, that, that is one of... <laughs> what a weird place. For what a again. weird place. That tells you everything you need to know about everything, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, but that is, in fact, one of the lovely points that I think John Gray demonstrates in that piece that as soon as one begins thinking about regulating, legislating, to some extent moderating, then torture, you miss the entire point. And I, you know, I think this gets us not just to the question, your series of wonderful observations of completely apt remarks. That gets us, I think, to the pertinent question, which is what is torture? What is it that makes torture what it is? Does it need to be instrumental? Does it need to be state-sanctioned in that sense? Is it after something? Does Is torture simply about the infliction of a certain degree of pain? If so, how much and how lasting must it be? But I think the other thing that's behind some of what you were just saying and some of the debates that we were having not that long ago is as soon as you bring torture into – I know this is going to sound weird – but into a set of options that are available for the extraction of data or for the punishment or interaction with detainees or prisoners or wanted suspects or whatever. As soon as you bring torture within a continuum of possibilities, you haven't just sketched out a limit case that only under certain egregious circumstances can be resorted to. By bringing torture into the set you infect, you corrupt everything else that then exists within that set. Because by resorting to torture, you are doing something systemic. You are doing something not just at a political level in many respects or a legal level, but you're doing something at a moral level that can't help but infect and affect 
everything else. Now, I realize that this is sort of only part of a discussion that we then need to go on and have, but this is where I think I've always found myself in great admiration of the absolute legal prohibition, both in, say, the Geneva Convention and also in the wake of the International uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The absolute... well, in fact, it's, it's so absolute that it's peremptory. So yes, it's it considered, is. It's considered something that applies in international law, whether you've signed a convention or not. Yes, it is. It is, there, is there are no circumstances in which this is conceivable, within which this is legitimate, within which this is permissible. And it seems to me that one of the things that that does is it's not just legally significant, but it's morally significant as safeguarding everything else that then exists within that particular set of ways with which we can deal with, we can interact with even the most objectionable of persons. So I think, I mean, your your questions about what is it that strings these examples of torture together? Can they be strung together? Is there something that unites them? I think that really throws us back on the question of what torture is. But then I think we have that broader or meta question, which is that once you bring torture within the realm of possibilities, you aren't just holding out an option in extremis you are then corrupting the entire political culture, the entire moral fabric of all the conversations that then take place within that particular political community. Right. So that means that the distinction between that which is authorised by the state and that which is not becomes significant because the mere act of authorisation creates the moral hazard you're talking about. Yes, exactly right. But that the common thread that unites all these examples is what, what is intrinsic to torture which is the transformation of the human being, whoever they are, from a person to a thing. That's right. And that this is such a serious moral transgression that it cannot be brooked under any circumstances because the moral injury of doing that is greater than whatever benefit you think might arise from whatever pragmatic benefit you think might arise from torturing in the first place. And that's before you get to the argument as to whether or not there really are those pragmatic benefits anyway, which I think is actually actually a reasonably important argument to have, mm. even though it does take you away from the moral terrain that, that you're interested in, mm. in discussing. Yeah. Nicely put. Yeah. All right. Um, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. And before we go on, just a reminder that there are aspects of this discussion, because it pertains to torture, that some listeners will find upsetting. Our guest uh, may well sound immediately familiar to some of our listeners. We had him on the show a few weeks ago when we talked about the unfolding and deteriorating situation in Myanmar. There were many things that came up in the course of that conversation. We sort of bookmarked it for ourselves that we were going to have to have him on once again to deal with one of his other areas of expertise. Nick Cheeseman is a fellow in the Department of Political and Social Change at Australian National University. He is the recipient of an Australian Research Council grant to study torture, as a matter of fact, in both Thailand and Myanmar. Nick, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thanks for having me back. So you heard Walid and I begin to sketch out, I think, some of the parameters of the debate. I'll, I'll confess that I didn't think about the killing, the suffocation of George Floyd as an instance of torture until you wrote an article arguing that that's precisely what it was. Because I think to some extent, 
I'd always been aware, I'd always been worried about the extent to which torture reduces another human being, not just to a source of information, but to a, to a thing, to something that can be extinguished at any moment. Uh, I'd always been suspicious of the utilitarian arguments about torture's efficacy. But I'd always assumed, I suppose, that there was always a telos to torture. In other words, that torture is very, very rarely gratuitous or very rarely simply punitive. And to that extent, torture isn't always communicative in the sense of exacting a particularly harsh or brutal or painful form of punishment that is then meant to be communicated to a larger group of people. I had always assumed, though, that torture had a point to it, that there was something that was meaning to be gotten or to be consolidated through the act of torture. And that's where I guess your argument about George Floyd threw things for me into a much sharper relief. So let me just leave it there. Why is it, do you think, I know we're going back a year, but as a way of kind of getting ourselves into what it is that constitutes torture, why is it that you think the suffocation, the police killing of George Floyd ought to be classified as torture? My view of torture is that it denotes the purposeful delivery of torment on a totally dominated person in the name of public authority. And insofar as that incident is concerned, it falls within the terms that I set for thinking about the, then the relationship between public authority, total domination and torment. Purposefulness is an important part of that conception of torture. And here I want to underscore the point that this is a conception, not a definition of torture. I'm using it to guide inquiries into the practice of torture in the world today, rather than try and set up, say, in the manner of the Convention Against Torture's definition, a series of elements that serve as a checklist to establish whether or not torture has occurred in specific cases or not. Uh, so this conceptualization instead opens up the possibility to come to the kinds of violence that we saw uh, in that video of George Floyd being killed and think about then how there is a purposeful quality to the, the practice in as much as there is the performance of purpose, but the specific purposes are, are not especially important for an understanding of what's going on. That's to say, I, I think what we need to try and get at here is what's the political dynamic of violent degradation, to use the, the language of Paul Kahn, that torture entails, rather than try and work through uh, a set of elements, if you will, in a legalistic sense, in order to establish what, what torture is. And I think in doing that, then, if we approach actual incidents, actual cases of torture, thinking in these terms, we can pass through those acts of torture, those practices of torture, and also ask questions, which are really the important questions for me, about what are states whose officers practice torture? So the reliance on the concept of authority, I think, is very interesting there. What, what do you mean by authority exactly and who can have it and how circumstantial is it, for example? Well, public authority then is a, a, a reference to the idea of the state and the work that state agents do. It may also be proxies of states, and I think under certain circumstances it can also be parastates, in other words, uh, institutions that operate in the manner of states, armed groups that establish themselves to try and make a case for something in the manner of statehood. The point is that then through the arrangements of political and social ordering that adhere to state institutions, 
institutions, it becomes possible to think systematically about the way in which torture is patterned and reproduced, say, through police forces, through armies, through uh, paramilitaries, and so on. You get it, for example, within terrorist groups. One of the defining features of a terrorist group, at least according to most scholars of terrorism, is that it's a non-state group. Some terrorist groups don't even really have pretensions to being states. They might have a kind of aspiration way down the track, but that's not what they are. Is that a different thing? Um, it's highly contingent, so we need to look in each case as to what are the characteristics of an institution, as to whether or not it would aspire to and have the features that we would say are recognisable in the, the, the manner of a state. So there are certainly groups, for instance, in Myanmar, where I do research, that represent themselves in the manner of states, that they occupy territories, that have populations, that they designate are members of the political community that they're representing, and that they're using symbolic material and violent means in order to defend those communities and advance claims on behalf of them. So that would be an example of the kind of group that I'm thinking of, but I would call for an examination of each specific case. Mm. Let's just pick up this particular point there, Nick, about asymmetry, which I think, I mean, it's not a word that you've used, but I think it seems to me to be highly apposite to precisely this. One of the things, because I'm not a political scientist like you are, and because I'm not an expert on terrorism the way that Walid is, I tend to think of these things more in terms of the the vernacular of moral philosophy. And one of the images, I suppose, that I've always found so compelling, even though she doesn't use this as an example of torture, it does seem to me to be almost a perfect image of it. Simone Weil, in her remarkable essay on Homer's Iliad, has this remarkable commentary on the scene uh, towards the end of the Iliad where Priam presents himself, even though a king presents himself in the tent and then at the feet of Achilles, presents himself in a position of absolute humiliation, of total powerlessness. His neck is exposed for Achilles to drive a spear through. And one of the things that, uh, that Simone Weil points out is that this is an image, if we think about Achilles here as almost omnipotent, as someone who is asymmetrically more powerful than anyone else in this particular portion of the book, even more than a king. Here we have someone meeting not so much a subject with whom he speaks, but an object who has been deprived of will, Uh, with whom there is no dialogue, no negotiation either needed or possible, and someone who is not so much dead, but who is not dead yet. And it's it's this image of precariousness, that the thing who is confronted with an object of force, with sort of the bearer of force, with the bearer of this kind of asymmetric power, has no way of speaking back has nothing that they can do or say that will satisfy uh, and therefore is simply in a position of utter abjection. Uh, And and she uses this then as, as the example of what it is that constitutes force, that force is that which has the ability to render everything before it not so much dead, but simply not dead yet. In other words, anything can be done to this object, and this object then has no way of either speaking back, defending itself, making its case in a manner that's going to be morally legible. In other words, nothing can be said in a manner that can be really heard 
by the bearer of that force. And I guess that's the thing that's always struck me most. And when you gave the example of George Floyd, and then when you think about what took place, say, in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, or if you think about the brutality that's laid out in the allegations of war crimes in the Brereton inquiry, what there is there is there is nothing that can be said on the part of those who are the objects of torture. There is nothing that can be said. There's no expression of distress, of plea. There is nothing that can be said that is morally legible, that is that can be given recognition or that is owed recognition by the person doing or performing, or persons, I should say, performing the act of torture. So it seems to me that that radical asymmetry is the thing that makes torture so morally egregious and therefore insofar as politics is a matter of exchange or dialogue or reciprocity that's what makes it then politically corrosive as well does that does that register for you at all uh, very much so and and indeed your, your point about the morality that then and the, the questions of morality that arise there also are extremely relevant to thinking about the political relations that are established or mimicked or idealized even in the moment of torture and we see this you know, of course i'm thinking about the video from august uh, from thailand from the consul one where we see exactly this situation as well right? the, the man in the video who has so many plastic bags over his head that when he tries to say something the police are responding what they literally cannot hear him speak mm. even though they are repeatedly asking questions of him there is no way for him to even have the kind of communication that the pretense of purposefulness associated with the torture situation supposes and this is something that many scholars in recent years have pointed to very well including one of the former special rapporteurs on torture in the united nations manfred novak who was really one who emphasized very much the centrality of the powerlessness of the person who was tortured as the central criterion. And to try and turn attention away to some extent is my reading from um, the, the question of the degree of pain or suffering that's inflicted on the person. And we know as well from, from the work of Alain Scari and others, this uh, attention to how, I think in Alain Scari's terms, the, um, what we see is actually a situation in torture where the person who is tortured has literally has no voice and the person who or the persons, rather, plural, who are torturing have a colossal voice, mm. uh, effectively, that their voice occupies entirely that situation because what is the, the person who is tortured to do other than to respond on the terms that have been laid down for them by the torturers? And I think that this is a characteristic of torture that we find across a range of different settings, acknowledging, and I think, uh, that important point that uh, Walid made earlier on, that, in fact, you were discussing a number of different varieties of torture, of, uh, torture in war, a torture in the context of counterterrorism program after 9-11, as well as the kinds of banal or ordinary torture and the torture of George Floyd, the torture that we saw in Thailand, with which uh, I'm especially interested because I think by attending to ordinary or banal or routine torture here, I'm using terms that also go to the work that Danielle Salamayer at the University of Sydney has done, that we can really uh, get a very clear sense of how this dynamic of violence 
process that I was referring to a moment ago is incorporated into the day-to-day -day practices of statehood, right? Exactly as you were suggesting earlier on, I think, that it is not exceptional, that it is not remarkable or, or something which occupies certain moments of spectacle, but rather something that is routinized in many ways. And again, I think that's a really such a striking feature of the video from Thailand is its administrative character. Um, Nick, can I just raise an issue then that Waleed touched on before, and Waleed, I don't know if you want to say something further about this, but one of the things I, I suppose that I'm still a little bit unclear about is the purposefulness of torture. So, I mean, you've made reference to this, that there are, there is a kind of alibi, and certainly Elaine Scarry in her book, Body in Pain, uh, deals with this in an unforgettable way, that there sometimes can be the alibi or even a post hoc alibi of purposefulness, that some form of information has to be extracted. Something, quote unquote, meaningful needs to be gotten out of the torture in order to give it a degree of post hoc justification. But it doesn't seem to me in what you're saying, and it certainly doesn't seem to me in the way that Simone Weil describes it, it doesn't seem to me in some of the other forms that we've, uh, forms of torture that we've read about in the Brereton inquiry, that doesn't seem to me to always be a clear purpose other than the consolidation of a certain form of authority or the communication of a certain asymmetry that needs to persist beyond the moment of torture. So I, I guess it's this issue of purposefulness. Does information always have to be extracted? Does something always have to be communicated to the larger public in order for torture to be torture? I mean, and I suppose if not, that doesn't it just tip over into sheer gratuitousness? The performance of purposefulness is important to the torture situation. And so in that video from Thailand, we see that performance in the manner in which the police are structuring the torture as though the purpose is indeed to get information from the person that they're torturing. But what we see precisely is this situation that Alain Scarry refers to, the fiction of power. So it's creating conditions in which the impression is created that the need of the police is to get information or to get an, a confession or something else. Now, in fact, there are many purposes that uh, come with torture situations. There can be torture to get confessions from people who haven't committed a criminal offence and the police may know that, but nevertheless, they're seeking it. There can be torture in order to uh, terrorise a subjugated population, a colonised population. There can be torture to obtain some kind of favour from the person who is tortured or from a family member or someone to whom they're connected with the awareness that that favour might follow from it. But to attend, to try and attend then to, to specifically what the purposes are, to focus on questions of information collection, for instance, that's characteristic of how the torture scenarios are played out in the, in the public media, I think is largely to miss the point. It's rather that performance of purposefulness that matters. Now, in this regard, one thing also to note is that in a lot of the the material that we see in the public domain on torture, there's a lack of attention to what are the qualities of the person that brings them into this situation that then this, say, hypothetical scenario is created in which the purpose of torture is ostensibly to gather information. And here is where attending to those people who are subjected to torture, what Graham Greene has referred to as the torturable classes is interesting or important. It's significant 
significant that in Thailand, in that video from August, the person who is tortured is an accused drug dealer. Here is an example of a person who, by virtue of what they have done, allegedly has been brought into a group of people classed as um, drug dealers who are, in fact, vulnerable to torture precisely by virtue of being in that class. Now, there are many other classes of people in Thailand and in other countries where torture is routinely practiced who are also in torturable classes, some of them by virtue of whom they are at birth and others by virtue of what it is that they do. But I think that this is something also that we need to think about when we consider the performance, especially when we're thinking about it in terms of its political implications. What is it about the social and political order in Thailand such that drug dealers or alleged drug dealers are routinely subject to or vulnerable to the act of torture. Uh, that, for me, is more important than asking questions after the specific purpose, which then lead us to occlude or elide the structural conditions that en enable the practice to occur. Hmm. But there is also a secrecy to torture, right? So this is one of the arguments that's made about it with respect to democracies, that democracies can't engage in torture without ceasing to be liberal democracies because of the secrecy that's required, whereas democracy and liberal democracy especially is predicated on a kind of transparency. We've seen privatised torture, if you like. I mean, I'm thinking of perhaps an unusual example, but that family in suburban Melbourne that was recently convicted on the basis of slavery and torture of a person, which the, who they had just in their home. There's no performance for the public there. And so... I wonder about when we talk about the performance of it, who exactly is the audience? I think I think of Guantanamo Bay, for example, um, or even the Abu Ghraib shots. These were not things that were intended for the public to see so that they could send a message or be celebrated. These were things that got out. Guantanamo Bay, one of the things about it was it was so secretive. We never really got to see what was going on there. We just hear stories about how the Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 183 times or, or whatever it might be. And he comes out with this enormous confession where he confesses to, I think, plotting to bomb buildings that didn't exist at the time. He was meant to have plotted to bomb them, things like that. So in other words, part of what seems to define it for me is that at least in several important cases, it's not for an audience. How do you fit that within the, the performative dimensions of what you're talking about? And in fact, well, sorry, Nick, just before you an answer, and it's a wonderful question, it should also be pointed out, as we've discussed on this show, that the fact that George Floyd's killing was public beyond the terrorized bystanders who witnessed it, the fact that the video of it went public, that was hardly intentional. It was in no way, in other words, intentionally or purposefully communicative to a broader audience? I think it's a wonderful question. Yeah, I think it's a good question in some ways, but I do want to push back on a couple of points. First of all, I, on, on liberal democracy, without going into it at length, I'm not sure that I agree with you that the key issue there is that then that it is clandestine or that it is secret. I think rather the point is that, and I think David Luban has, has made this point, that torture for, according to liberal democratic values, is sort of, it's paradigmatic of a kind of tyrannical political condition that liberalism hates. So there's something about it that from a liberal democratic standpoint is especially offensive. But going to the back to and, and taking the question on the terms that you offered it up, I think that the point is that it doesn't need to be seen to be known. So 
the torture situation requires very often on conditions, not always, but very often on, in, on conditions in which the torturers can obtain that total domination that I was referring to a moment ago. And that calls for an arrangement in which very often they are enclosed, in which they are in circumstances that the person feels that there is absolutely nothing that they can do about the situation that they are in. That's the condition that they're trying to create, the situation that they're yeah. trying to create. But that doesn't mean then that there is no way to communicate out of that situation to other audiences. Right? Uh, alleged drug dealers in Thailand know very well that drug dealers in Thailand are tortured and killed. Right? Among that community, this is known. Among people in the south of Thailand, in the three southernmost provinces on the border of Malaysia, where a, a civil conflict has been going on for many years, there's very good awareness that if you're taken to certain sites, you're likely to be tortured inside those um, military camps, right? So it's not as if the uh, torture has to be uh, presented to the public in the way that I think you, your question was presupposing, or at least the way that, that I heard it. Indeed, one of the characteristics of torture that's been written about at great length over some years now is that we see the shift in torture from spectacular forms of torture in earlier periods into the 18th, 19th, and 20th, 20th centuries to its concealment. But that's not to say that there isn't still a performativity associated with it. The other point, of course, about performativity is the internal structure. So the person tortured has to be in a situation where they get the sense also that there is this purposefulness to the practice of torture. But that doesn't mean, first of all, that the relationship between purposefulness generally and the specific ostensible purpose of torture uh, can be easily or readily identified. And there's a lot of ambiguities there in the practice of torture. And that's why attending to to specific and actual cases of torture is important to try and tease those out rather than work from unrealistic scenarios of the sort that you were talking about some time ago. Hmm. The voice you heard there belongs to Nick Cheeseman, a fellow in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, Lead Ali is my name, Scott Stevens, my co-host. And just a brief reminder that there are aspects of this discussion that some listeners will find upsetting. One of the things that I think that points to then, Nick, is the connection, and I don't know if you want to take this up further, Waleed, but it's a connection between, say, torture and terror. That's a particular connection, say, that someone like Avisham Margalit draws, <clears throat> that even if one thinks about, say, the status of and the communicative effect of the disappeared under certain despotic or tyrannical regimes, thinking, say, of Chile or Argentina, I mean, one of the really interesting things is that, yes, the torture may be concealed, but the disappearance of persons is necessarily absolutely communicative. It's terrorizing in that sense. But I suppose that this also then points to, I should apologize, I suppose, from moving this off political terrain back onto moral terrain. But I guess I'm trying to think a bit further about the conditions under which torture does in fact become licit or acceptable or conceivable and why it is that that then has uh, sort of ongoing ramifications. It just strikes me that while no, no doubt, and I mean, there are fictional examples, I think, say, if James could see its novel uh, Waiting for the Barbarians, but there are also clear examples that we read about, uh, about there being a kind of sadism. It's almost pure sadism 
in the infliction of high degrees of pain, almost a kind of fascination in just how much pain can be borne. But for, for the most part, it just strikes me that one of the things that we often see, especially in, in accounts of those who have been tortured, is the experience of the one being tortured, seeing that the one doing the torturing doesn't believe that the one being tortured really is in pain or that the pain is felt the same way. And I, I, I guess I, I think here of, I mean, not just Simone Weil, but even someone like Stanley Cavell, who, who says that the inability to recognize the, the common human distress borne by another person is for the person unable to so recognize being in a condition of soul blindness, where I simply cannot see that this person experiences things the way that I do, experiences isn't loss. It, isn't it more that you want them to experience it? Well, I mean, it like may... I think of the war on terror. I it may begin context. as a want. It may begin as a want, but it, doesn't it end up then becoming what can only be referred to as, the, as almost a vice, an inability? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not totally convinced by that description. I think it might be apt for certain moments of torture or certain periods of history... But I'm not sure that so, – so my frame for torture is overwhelmingly driven by the war on terror. I think overwhelmingly there's a feeling that – there's a hope that they feel the pain the same way because of the fact that they belong to a torturable class, as Nick was describing earlier, that torturable class being terrorists. And, of course, their guilt in that is presumed – and that was the nature of the conversation surrounding Guantanamo Bay. But the pain that they are meant to feel I think is – is actually part of the catharsis. I think torture in the context of the war on terror was a kind of catharsis. It was a way of purging the the pain, the, the toxins that were building up within particularly American populations as a result of the September 11 attacks. So I'm just not sure that's the way I... I mean, I could be wrong, of course, but that, that's not the way I would frame it. Nick, do you? what do you think? I actually thought Scott was going to take that in a different direction to what he did. So I, I'm not sure if I could return to the starting point of his remarks in order to try something out, which is not going to address that question directly, Walid, but may still be useful for us. And you mentioned that of this, this binary, the, the licit and the illicit, uh, Scott, and I was thinking through whether or not that's an appropriate way of thinking about what happens in these circumstances, that the move from the licit to the illicit or the back again, or from the, the legal to the illegal and, and back again. Sometimes these binaries are troubling. It seems to me that in the case of the war on terror, and in the case of um, the occupied territories in Israel, in some other settings where you have especially legalistic um, torturers or states that torture, we encounter situations where there's a special concern then to think about how torture can be legalized in some way, precisely because there is a moral quality to rule following that matters for the purposes then of doing the work that torture does in those settings. But for the most part, with the, certainly the, the kinds of cases 
services that I'm looking at in Southeast Asia, we don't find that binary working in the same way. Rather, what we see is that there's a slippage between the licit and the illicit, between the legal and the illegal. Uh, torture cases are brought to courts in Thailand. Very often they're brought because the people who have been tortured um, try to say that they were tortured to mount a defense against criminal cases that are brought against them by the police. And uh, sometimes they also bring cases alleging and torture or physical abuse in custody as well. And what we see in those cases is that the courts in Thailand are adept at somehow acknowledging the fact, registering the fact that torture has been spoken of, but neither making a legal determination that would uh, approve of it or condemn it. In other words, it occupies an amorphous space somewhere between the legal and the illegal. And I think that's one of the difficulties that we have then when discussing not only how to locate the practice of torture in the structures that we have for thinking about and discussing what the state does in our time, but then also the, the difficulties that we have, I think, that you were trying to get at with the moral uh, slippages there, Scott. Can I, um, that, that's all terrifically useful. I think. Can I just respond very, very quickly to Waleed's point, which I find troubling, Waleed, on all sorts of different levels. If what you're suggesting is true, and I'm not sure that it is. I mean, if I've interpreted you right, what you're saying is that the pain inflicted on terrorists is meant to have almost a kind of expiatory effect. It's almost a form of sacrifice by way of purging the pain that was undergone by American politics and society on 9-11. Mm. I, it would horrify me. I mean, that, that for me slips over into pure gratuity, gratuitousness. Yes. Which, which frightens me on, on, on any number of levels. It just seems to me that one of the things that torture must rely on is the overcoming of something even deeper than a moral intuition but the absolute revulsion at the thought of making another human being feel at the same level to the same degree that I myself would feel were I in that position. So, for instance, if one just thinks about the moral justification given for child removal, whether it be among Aboriginal families in this country mm. or children of slaves in the United States – the alibi was they don't feel the same attachment that we do. They can just have more. That denial yes. of the possibility of depth, as Ray Gator would put it, is the condition of possibility whereby the unimaginable can be inflicted on another human being. Well, I agree, but I'm just saying you're applying something there that I don't think applies in the case of the War of Terror. I think the people that we were torturing, by we, I suppose, I mean Western nations, and particularly America, were torturing, were subspeciated, right? They, they were yes. deemed not yes. to be fully human, but not that they weren't fully feeling. I don't think that we felt they weren't experiencing pain. I think we felt they deserved the pain that we were inflicting. And we dressed it up in a language of utility, right? getting useful information. But that ran aground very quickly. To the, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed example I gave before of being waterboarded 183 times, I don't know what information is elicited the 183rd time that wasn't elicited the first 182. Right? 
that that's the kind of ritualized element of this. And and I think catharsis, I don't know, I think catharsis is the correct prism through which to understand that. And if you're horrified by it, I would say, yes, you should be. Mm. It's horrific. But that that's what I think is happening there. Nick, what do you think? Well, a couple of times you've spoken of dehumanization or um, the, the reduction of the person who's tortured to a thing. And I wonder if, and this is, some, again, somewhat tangential with apologies, but I wonder if the, the point here is that it's not so much the, the reduction of the person to a thing, but rather the removal of any civil or political contents from the person. That is the production of bare life, if you will. What, what do you think about that? Uh, that the body is merely a body. All, all you have is yeah. a human. Yeah, that's, I think, what I meant by saying a thing. Or the way Scott might put it, a mere means. But what that then means is that we don't need to have any particular belief about their experience of the pain because we've managed to move ourselves to a point of not caring about that. Well, I remove pain from the discussions that I have, and when hence I use the term torment rather than pain. But I do that for, I think, for somewhat different reasons from those that you're trying to get at. The difficulty with including pain in the definitions of torture, such as they are, is that then the tendency is to then require that we come up with some criteria for the assessment of what, A, what does or doesn't constitute pain, and then to measure severity of pain. And I think that's highly problematic. It's problematic for a host of reasons. One is that actually, ironically, it enfolds with the epistemology of pain that is precisely the epistemology of pain of the torturer. Uh, that idea that somehow, uh, if if indeed pain counts for the purposes of the extraction of something, if you will, from the body, then it can be objectively verified and measured. And um, in my experience documenting cases of torture in Thailand and Myanmar, I find that the character and content of torment is incredibly varied. It's enormously varied. Uh, sometimes it entails that kind of humiliation that uh, Margulit, whom as Scott referred to a little while ago, tries to get at. And, and that, I think, is a significant part of this a mode of totally dominating a person who's subjected to torture. So that's not to say let's set aside questions of pain, but I think that sometimes an overemphasis on, on pain, attending to pain in the ways I was describing a moment ago, can be a kind of misguidance. Hmm. We're sadly out of time. Again, Nick, we'd love to keep going, but we just have this thing where we don't have that option I'm afraid so no doubt you'll be back again in a couple of weeks we'll talk about something else <laughs> at that point. Um, Nick Cheeseman is a fellow in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University, I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield. Uh, we're done for the week, we'll see you next week You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.